Welcome to the 54th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio magazine podcast. Ear to the Ground features interviews and field reports related to sustainable agriculture, family farming, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. When one thinks of industrial or factory farming, the first image that comes to mind is large-scale livestock confinement operations or thousands of acres of monocrop fields. But it's important to remember that industrialized farming has seeped into just about every aspect of our food production system, even honey. Yes, honey production has become a factory-like operation. Small and medium-sized beekeepers who keep their hives in one place throughout the year are fast being replaced by industrialized operations that move the hives around the country so that cash crops like almonds can be pollinated. This migratory beekeeping produces many of the same negative results as factory farming of livestock sick critters, poor quality honey, and environmental problems. Beekeeping experts have recently begun taking a hard look at the way we produce honey because of the sharp increase in the occurrence of colony collapse disorder in North America and other parts of the world. Also called CCD, it is characterized by the sudden disappearance of worker bees, which decimates a hive overnight. Several theories have been proposed for the cause of CCD. Pesticides, pathogens, and lack of adequate plant habitat are just a few of the possible causes being investigated. There are also concerns that the problem is brought on by the general stresses that result from moving bees across the country and pushing production in intensive confinement. Whatever the cause, CCD is not just a concern because it could affect how much honey you put on your toast. Bees are key pollinators of many plants in the world, from alfalfa to melons to apples. In fact, one estimate is that honeybees, along with wild pollinators like moths, baths, and hummingbirds, are responsible for every third bite of food we take. What's happening to the bees could also be a threat to all kinds of pollinators, which could be devastating to our food industry as well as the environment in general. Beekeeper Brian Fredrickson doesn't engage in what he calls feedlot beekeeping. He has hives at 18 different locations in central and southern Minnesota, and he keeps them in place pretty much year-round. This allows him to produce top-quality honey that has a story behind it. From what kind of plant produced the nectar for the honey to the type of landscape the bees were flying in when they were pollinating to the human history of the farm located on that land. Fredrickson calls this single-source honey production, and he believes it's a key way to keep the beekeeping industry healthy while protecting the environment and all the other wild pollinators that are out there. It even provides an avenue for people to take steps to protect family farms and the rural landscape. In some ways, it's the ultimate way of localizing food production. I recently visited Fredrickson's operation, which is called Ames Farm. After showing me a few of his hives, his orchard, and an immaculate honey processing facility, Brian and I talked about sustainable beekeeping. He started out by providing a short primer on how honey is produced. Um, I, I do see a lot of misquotes in the media about pollen somehow making honey, but it's the nectar that the bees drink from the flowers and carry in a second stomach and regurgitate into the comb that becomes honey. Um, Pollen is uh, tiny little grains of pollen that need to be transferred between two flowers for plant sex to occur and for that plant to recreate itself. And, you know, I think humans have forgotten that, you know, we're just trying to grow some food and harvest some food to get through the winter, and it's no different than that for the bees or the flowers or trees. They need to have that plant sex to recreate a seed to be there the next year. The bee is just trying to bring in some honey to bring into the hive to get through the winter. It's that whole process of uh, the plant uh, will give off nectar in order to fulfill its its sort of destiny. 
and that's where the bee gets involved, gets attracted to that nectar. And it's kind of interesting that the bigger, more showy flowers um, tend not to have much nectar for pollinators. Well, they've they've provided some other way um, to attract a pollinator by their, their showy types of flowers. So it's those little nuances that are going on every day out here in the country or in the city that uh, people need to think twice about, well, what sort of role do you play in that, you know? Do you leave some areas of flowers in your garden or in your yard? And what other public policy can affect that too? Well, when I first got involved with beekeeping, I, I really didn't know any more than the average person. And uh, it's not like honey comes from the sky like manna. So I, I slowly realized that, you know, the plants that bees visit change throughout a season. Different parts of Minnesota, different climate, different soils, um, all you know, have some story to tell. I came up with this concept of single source honey, the idea being that honey produced in one geographical location uh, from one hive and one time period is really a special sort of moment. Um, The bees more or less take like a floral snapshot of some short time period in some place. And there's a lot of people that have farming roots in their family in some way. And it's it's interesting to them to know where their food came from. And we're able to get this nailed down to what farm, what piece of land, what county, um, the time period, and the plant. And all these different pieces of information mean something to different people. I just think it's important that we can add a little more to somebody's experience rather than just putting some honey on the toast in the morning. Maybe they'll think about, geez, well... Well, where's that piece of land, or what's that part of Minnesota like, or I know somebody that lived there, or that plant, or, you know, just get people thinking. And uh, when you do that, hopefully they can think about things in their life, like maybe leaving some extra flowers in their backyard, or looking at public policy that affects pollinators. And uh, hopefully what we do with our honey is a little more than provide some sweetness on somebody's breakfast table yeah that's i think that's really it i really like that picture that you paint of the bees are kind of going out there and they're kind of collecting a moment in time and bringing it back and and uh, could you just share maybe one or two examples of uh i think we were looking at some labels in there earlier and you had uh some of the well honey that was from painter's creek Creek. yeah i thought that was like wow it just right there says it all you know you aren't going to see that on it regular honey that you get from uh from the the supermarket or whatever sure sure actually one of my favorite stories is um there's a beekeeper harry stewart that kept bees for 65 some years of his life down in winnebago uh it's in southern minnesota and uh, when he died i took over his hives and just couldn't move those hives i mean who am i just some beekeeper it's been around a few years how could i move those after all those years and he had one uh, farm there. It's a century farm. There was another one, the Muir Farm. Uh, Senator Muir at one time helped get the uh, Arboretum established here. And his daughter is still alive. She's almost 100 years old. She's leaving the farm to the county library. And it's real important to her that those hives are still there. You know, it's traditions, things like that. It's just a tiny little thing. But that's important. That's how we preserve rural lifestyles and keep people in the city 
connected with what's going on out on those dirt roads. So yeah, the Muir Farm is one of our 18 locations. You get some wonderful honey there, and I just always think about walking in Harry's footsteps when I'm down there. Mrs. Muir told me that he used to take a nap out in the bee yard there, so I try to find a few minutes to take a nap too. <laughs> I, that's, I just really like that, how you, you kind of paint that picture and, and talk about how the bees can do that. You know, one of the things we've been talking about today is some of the challenges facing beekeepers, but also facing agriculture in general, in that you had talked earlier about how how much we rely on, how much food production relies on pollinators in general, not just bees. And that's a real issue right now with the lack of diversity we have in the countryside. And uh, uh, it's it's mostly been talked about in terms of the bee industry. Maybe if you could just talk a little bit about this this whole issue of we've ha- we're having colonies that are collapsing and maybe some of the changes you've seen in the industry that you think might be uh, the cause of some of that uh, a little bit? Yeah, we, we get involved with um, doing a little pollination in some orchards in the spring, but uh, things like melons, um, that blossom, if it's not pollinated the same day it opens, it's it's kaput. There's you know no fruit from that blossom. Um, pumpkins, cranberries, blueberries... Almonds will really drive beekeeping right now in the United States. It's the biggest cash crop in California. It's with the low commodity prices for honey and the importations of honey uh, in the United States. Most of the big commodity beekeepers have had to move their hives out to California. In fact, more than half of United States colonies are out there in the winter. And it's very hard on the bees. They're feeding on a monocrop. There's a number of practices involved with that that don't really have the bees' best interests in mind. I've kind of coined this term feedlot beekeeping where, you know, it's no different. There's a lot of parallels to uh, livestock and other types of agriculture where a high density of uh, beehives or animals, uh, big surprise, problems, you know. Bees in this case are over-medicated. Some of them get sick from this new CCD thing you hear about in the news and and the guy is wiped out. And uh, is it the virus that's the issue, or is it this industrial approach to keeping bees in this massive monocrop in California? But there's, uh, you know, there's just like in other areas of farming, there's many different levels of beekeeping. And a small-time backyard or stationary beekeeper like myself is probably going to play a more important role in the future as local food systems become more critical. There's a lot of different issues affecting it right now. Everything from roadside spraying to mowing to the amount of uncropped land that a farmer keeps on his uh, property. And, and this is true for urban and suburban people, too. Everybody can pitch in on this one. They say about one-third bite or one, one-third of every bite of food that a person has in a day is indirectly or directly uh, related to some type of pollination. And and in the end, too, it's not just the food that we eat, but it's the quality of life. You know, the flowers need pollination to throw seed. The trees um, are major sources of of pollen and nectar for our bees. So it's it's really, you know, all big, one big system, and um, people are part of it. If we can think about the pollinators and the birds and the bees, as they say, uh, that's, uh, that's critical for not only our food, but our quality of life.
more information on Ames Farm, see www.amesfarm.com. That's A-M-E-S-F-A-R-M.com. To read a review of a fascinating book on how much we rely on pollinators, go to www.landstewardshipproject.org and put in the search term, Forgotten Pollinators. Send your comments and suggestions about this podcast to me, Brian DeVore, at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. You can also call me at 612-729-6294. A special thank you goes out to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician who provided Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a very special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, you'd like to support us, go to landstewardshipproject.org to learn how to join LSP. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.